0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management,
1: a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode.
0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode here of State of Sport Management. We do about 12 of these a year, but today and this week seems like there's quite a few, but I was able to get quite a few good topics lined up. We did one this morning. As you're listening to this, you probably already heard the episode on sports gambling I did with Dr. Adam Cohen. Uh, but today we have, so I've really wanted to interview for a long time and I finally found a good time to bring him in. But um, our guest today is going to be Richard Lapcheck, who's professor at DeVos Sport Business Management Program down at University of Central Florida, which is nice. I'm interviewing here on middle of April and we somehow got snow yesterday, so I'm very jealous of his geographic location. <laughs> yeah, we got some snow yesterday, so yeah, but um Dr. Lapchak is going to join us to kind of talk a little bit, I guess I would frame this as kind of his career, but also his focus on diversity in sport as a general topic. And he's also going to talk about um, kind of different organizational focuses and topics that he's done in the back. So Dr. Lapchak, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for asking me. Yeah. So you wanted me to get you started, so I'm going to do it. You're, you're a 76-year-old white man. How is it that you spent more than six decades fighting for racial and gender equality?
1: It's a deeply personal story, Matt. Um, When I was five years old, literally, I looked outside my bedroom window in Yonkers, New York, where I was being raised and saw my father's image swinging from a tree with people under the tree picketing. And for several years after that, I'd pick up the extension phone in our house. And it was racial epithet after racial epithet being hurled at him. He didn't know I was listening. As a five, six and seven year old, I had no idea what I was listening to or seeing when I looked outside the window, except that I knew a lot of people hated my best friend. And I would later find out that as the coach the New York Knicks, he had signed the first black player in the history of the NBA, Nat Sweetwater-Clifton. And in 1950, there were a lot of people who didn't want that to happen. Uh, Since we just had Jackie Robinson Day uh, two days ago, I'll add a Jackie Robinson note to it. So my dad knew that our whole family were Brooklyn Dodger fans. This is the early 1950s, and my dad was going to be the co-keynote speaker with Jackie Robinson at a fundraiser at Madison Square Garden, he asked if I'd like to come meet Jackie. I had no idea what his social significance was as a seven-year-old, but he was one of the stars of the team I rooted for. So, of course, I wanted to go. Spend some time with Jackie when he wasn't on stage. Um, and after it was over, my dad had a reputation for courting the New York media. So he would always invite them after a game or after an event to someplace where they could sit down and relax and talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. And in this day, we... Went to a restaurant called Mama Leone's Restaurant, which was a famous Italian place near the old Madison Square Garden. Jackie went home to be with his wife, Rachel. And I hope your listeners have either seen the movie by Ken Burns Burns or the movie 42 to see what an incredible love affair they had. And I'm happy to tell you that all these years later, now 70 years later, Uh, On the first Monday of every March, except during this COVID period, I have been Rachel Robinson's date at the Jackie Robinson Foundation Gala. Any of your listeners ever have a chance to be in her presence? She's 99 now. Sees it. She's just such an amazing woman. But back at the uh, at Mama Leone's in the bar area and the most famous, I didn't realize it at the time, columnist, sports columnist in America shouted across the bar to his colleagues who were obviously all white men at the time. Uh, did you see that and showboating referring to Jackie Robinson? Again, I had no idea what he was talking about, but I'll never forget my dad grabbed my arm with such a grip. He had big, powerful hands. He was a great big man basketball player back in his day and squeezed so hard that I can still feel it. And he said, some people only know how to hate. I didn't know what that meant as a seven-year-old, but I knew there was something wrong with this world I was being raised in. My dad is a double inductee into the Basketball Hall of Fame. He was the first great big man in the game. I was six feet tall in the eighth grade. Uh, everybody assumed I was going to be six nine or 6'10. They can't tell by the, being on this podcast, but uh, I'm actually, I was, never grew another inch. In fact, I've shrunk two inches over the years, <laughs> uh, but I was sure that because everybody told me that I'd play in the NBA and I wanted to work on my game and I was recruited by a school called Power Memorial High School, which was the top basketball program in the country at the time. Didn't go there, but became friends with a coach. He invited me to his summer camp in 1961. There were no high school coaches in the country who had summer camps in 1961. There were barely any college coaches, but this guy was named Jack Duny, quite an innovator. And at the camp were five of his white players and one of his black players. And one of the white players who's been a D1 coach for 35 years was dropping the N-word on the black guy from dawn until dusk for the first three days until I finally challenged him. He knocked me out cold. The guy, black kid at the time, was called Lou cinder And a lifelong friendship began to the point where last Friday, uh, my wife and I flew out to California to be the 75th birthday party. So it's been a rich six-decade-long friendship um, that has meant the world to me personally. Uh, but the importance as a 15-year-old white kid in Yonkers, New York, and almost the whole white community was that I suddenly had a young, urban African-American lens with which to see what racism was doing in his community and other communities of color. And I decided that day uh, that I was gonna spend the rest of my life working in the area of civil rights. I didn't know what that meant as a 15 year old. I just knew that that's what I felt that I had to do. So eventually I end up doing my doctoral dissertation uh, on how South Africa used sport as part of its foreign policy and the international report, response to it during the apartheid era and compared it to how the Nazis had done that in the thirties. It eventually got published as a book. I really had no intention of being involved in the world of sports. I was teaching at a college in Virginia. And uh, when it got published as a book, I started speaking about apartheid and ended up founding the sports boycott of South Africa. Uh, For those listeners who aren't familiar with apartheid, it was the most racist system of government on the face of the earth in the second half of the 20th century. Only time in peacetime history that the global community came together to try to strangle the regime. Uh, because it was so awful. And there was an oil boycott, a trade boycott, a bank loan boycott, and a sports boycott. And that's where I came in. So we we started the sports boycott in the United States because we knew South African teams would start to come because the European countries were no longer competing with South Africa. So in 1978, they were scheduled to have their Davis Cup team play in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, at Vanderbilt University, and my role as the head of the coalition was to go down there and try to get the matches canceled. I was working closely with the African governments, Matt, and they asked me to announce that uh, they would boycott the 1984 Los Angeles Summer Olympics if this team was allowed to come. So there was a, a lot of media interest in that, and all three networks were covering that announcement before I spoke to the Vanderbilt student body, and Dick Shap was then probably the most prominent sports broadcaster in the country. His son is Jeremy now prominent broadcaster himself on ESPN, came up to me and said the financial back as the Davis Cup had pulled out, I announced that to the crowd, which was an anti-apartheid crowd. They went crazy. Um, And I flew home to Virginia that night thinking maybe for the first time in my life I had done something worthwhile. The next night I was working late in my college office, which was in the school's library. Library closed at 10.30. It was 10.45 when I heard a knock on the door. I assumed it was the campus security who would routinely check if they saw a light on in the building after the building had closed. So I didn't hesitate to open the door, but instead of campus security, it was two men wearing stocking masks who proceeded to cause liver damage, kidney damage, a hernia, concussion, and carved the N-word in my stomach with a pair of office scissors. I knew that night that lying in the hospital, that if people had gone to the length they did to try to stop my father 28 years before, and to the length they did to try to stop me that night, that they must've thought that I were using the sport platform to address racism in America was more effective than they wanted, and they wanted it stopped. Uh, So I decided that I was going to spend the rest of my life using that sports platform uh, to address various social justice issues, starting with race, but expanding significantly beyond that. So that's kind of how this 76-year-old white guy came to be involved for all of his lifetime. It came from my family. It came from my friendships. uh, It came from my life experiences. So thank you for listening.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, there's... So much to unpack there. I, I think one thing I'm going to hit on that I know we don't have down as a, a topic to discuss, but I think it's really relevant now. If, talk about this apartheid leadership and like its effect and you're looking at sport boycott. I think that's a discussion people are having right now with the Russian war with Ukraine and whether there should be an involvement in sport boycott. And we've seen various levels of people pushing. I've seen hockey leagues that have been pushing to get Russian teams out. There's been discussion about Olympics should be involved in that. I mean, Do you have thoughts on that and like what should be involved? Is that something that should be extended out into this situation? or
1: No, no, I definitely have thoughts on it. In fact, I've spent most of the time since the war began trying to organize such a boycott. I'm a member of something called the Sports Leadership Council, which is made up of all the commissioners and kind of senior executives at various sports federations and sports leagues, as well as some uh, university athletic directors, and tried to get them to endorse it. Um, which would have been what you just said, a a sports boycott of uh, not only Russia, but Belarus as well because of its involvement. And many of the members of the Sports Leadership Council had already implemented a boycott, the NBA, the NHL. You you mentioned a couple of them here. Um, And when we finally got to the vote, they decided that they didn't want a unified boycott. They wanted to go individually, sport by sport. Um, So I am still working or starting to work with the organizations that supported us back in the 1970s, which were largely political, civil rights and and religious organizations uh, to see what we can do, because I think it's important that sports make a a dramatic statement here. Um, You may have seen and your listeners may have seen that that the start of the Invictus Games uh, in the Netherlands uh, that the Ukrainian team arrived to, to much acclaim, but four members of the Ukrainian team were killed in the war uh, days be- before they were supposed to head to the Netherlands for the events.
0: Yeah, it's. I think I've, I've seen lots of discussion on social media within our field of people talking about this is a good thing or bad thing. It's it's definitely made me reflect on that. I, I think it's been interesting. You bring up a, a lot of individual organizations are wanting to go out and make their own statement. Um, I think the one that was most interesting to me was FIFA had I think World Cup qualifying matches, and so they had to make a they had a much quicker timeline than probably they wanted, and other organizations had the runway to make done. So I thought that was interesting. And you were talking about pressure it was kind of interesting as each organi- each other team that had to potentially play Russia decided that they would not play them. Essentially, created that pressure that you were talking about um, within the within
1: FIFA. Yeah, no, FIFA acted really quickly. I don't consider FIFA to be a progressive sports federation by any stretch of the imagination but just the opposite uh you know it's its location in qatar for the world cup is i've been involved in the issue of human trafficking for about a decade now and that's been a primary target of, of anti traffickers as the, la- the labor they used to build the facilities it's estimated that you know between 1000 and 1200 workers came from neighboring countries under horrible conditions working in the desert heat Um, About 1,200 people died uh, while doing that work. Uh, It's a pretty terrible situation, but FIFA did step up here. Uh, I think they realized they had to.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. It just, it came to a point where they had no choice. Kind of talking about, so I think one of the recurring contributions that I see all the time because of at least my research, and I'm sure lots of others, is you create these racial and gender report cards for specific professional and collegiate organizations What was your kind of genius behind starting that and continuing that on a yearly basis?
1: Well, after the attack that I spoke about earlier took place, I was approached by a a publisher to write an autobiography about that. Uh, And about halfway through it, he asked me to add a section of the book on the current state of racism in sport. Um, So I did that. And the first racial and gender report card of sorts was part of the book. Uh, not being called a racial and gender report card, but a chapter in the book. And the Sports Illustrated review of of the book was a scathing review of why is this guy bringing up uh, things that don't really exist anymore? Obviously, sports are integrated. What's he talking about? Uh, And I realized how far, how big the gap was in terms of knowledge. So uh, in the late, after Al Campanis made his famous or infamous statement on Nightline and that Black people may not have the necessities to be big league managers or general managers. We started doing racial, re- At first it was just the racial report card in 1988. We've added racial and gender report cards. So we do them on, um, we're just about to issue Major League Baseball. We do it on the NBA, WNBA, Major League Soccer, the NFL and college sport. Um, and we and the sports media, which is by the worst, it's the most white male oriented, oriented of all the groups we cover. College sport is the next to the worst. Um, so we decided to do that. And I think when we first did it, Matt, the, the commissioners of the various leagues were angry that I was doing it. Like, why is, why is this guy messing with us? Now I think they all realize that diversity is a business imperative as well as a moral imperative. And I think all of the commissioners tell me that they use it with their teams where the results aren't as good. The league offices all do pretty well in terms of hiring women and people of color. It's at the individual individual team levels where they, they fall down significantly. So I think they're using that now. And I can tell you that in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Almight Arbery and the start of the racial reckoning, that we had never been asked to do a racial and gender report card. As I said, we just started them and, and began doing it. Since that time, we have agreed to do and are doing racial and gender report cards on the NHL, NASCAR. Um, the U.S. Olympic Committee, National Women's Soccer League, um, the Pac-12, the West Coast Conference, which some of your listeners may know, uh, made a dramatic uh, statement, but they were the first one to adopt it. And they also adopted what they call the Russell Rule, named after Bill Russell, uh, that there had to be diverse pools of candidates for all of the senior openings in their athletic departments. For those of you listeners who don't know, the West Coast Conference is where Gonzaga sits, uh, and and several kind of top best small Catholic basketball schools primarily make it up. Um, So, you know, there, I think this is a moment that we need to seize in the world of sport uh, because of the racial reckoning and the awareness that's being placed on racial issues and other forms of discrimination now uh, that we have to, to, to move as far and as fast as we can in the world of sport to kind of catch up to where we should be.
0: And I think with these reports are really good because I love that they happen every year. So you're able to see either incremental or significant leaps forward or even incremental or like regression and a drop off, especially within ownership stuff. But I mean, do you think diversity within professional and college sport employment has improved or gotten worse since you started assessing these through your reports?
1: At the college level, it's actually gotten worse, if you, if you can believe that. Um, it's gotten marginally better in the statistics of the the one statistic i'm about to share with you but this is the worst statistics statistic we report every year in all of the report cards and it is that in college sport across all three divisions that more than uh, 60 or 60 percent of all the women's teams across all three divisions all sports are coached by men wow. you know it's been 50 years since title IX was passed we're about to celebrate its passage 50 years ago in june Sixty percent of women's teams to be coached by men just doesn't even make any sense, let alone fair the fairness issue. Fifty percent of the assistant jobs on women's teams uh, are held by men. Um, you know, and we can go on from there. But you know, we the, the percentage of head football coaches in the FBS schools is about the same as it was in two thousand one. The percentage of college basketball coaches who are black is less than it was in 2006, when it reached its peak of 26%. And the statistics go on and on. College sport just hasn't felt the pressure for some reason uh, and hasn't hasn't made the movement. And that's why I've been pressing for something, what I call the Eddie Robinson rule. Eddie Robinson was the the head coach at Grambling State University for 57 years. And the Eddie Robinson rule uh, would in effect be uh, what the WCC uh, announced as the Russell rule. I don't care what it's called. Uh, I was involved with the National Football League. I went with Johnny Cochran and Cyrus Mary in 2001, both civil rights attorneys, to threaten legal action against the NFL if they didn't change their hiring policies. And that was the year after that is when the Rooney Rule was adopted. It worked well for several years. Obviously, it's not working well now, and they're trying to enhance the rule and come up with a, other strategies to get more coaching opportunities and general manager and president opportunities in the NFL, but uh, that's been dragging behind, but we need—you uh, know—we we, we have to have diverse pools of candidates, and that doesn't mean one person. All the studies show that if you have one diverse candidate in a in a hiring pool, it's not going to make a difference. It has to be multiple candidates.
0: I think I love that you bring up how the NFL is considering, and they've made some changes. I think it's interesting. I think they're doing like a draft pick compensation now, where if you uh, hire a black coach essentially to become the head coach or get essentially a promotion that you are eligible to receive the team that originally hired that coach is eligible for a draft pick. Um, I, any thoughts on that? Do you think that's like, is that going to be a good gain or what are your thoughts? You know, I think
1: that the draft picks are so, uh, held in such high, of high importance by NFL teams that losing one or getting one, uh, is a big big plus i mean you see what people uh, trade for at the time of the draft uh, there's so much going on so ha- having this as part of the package of of hiring practices the nfl also recently hired uh, announced that every team in the league has to hire a senior level black head coach not sorry not head coach but black senior coach uh either a quarterback's coach or a a depth number two in the offensive coordinator position, because that's the pipeline. Uh, So, and the NFL is paying for the salary of all those uh, people being hired by each team. And they're also uh, mandating hiring a senior woman executive on the team. So, so I think they're kind of artificially, but I, I support it uh, putting those people in place uh, to expand the pipeline, but also change the dynamic on each of those teams. Now, you know, the Tampa Bay, Bucs, when they won the Super Bowl uh, a year and a half ago now, had four of their senior assistant positions were all black head coaches. One just became the head coach after the Tampa Bay coach stepped down. Um, and and they actually had a woman um, in a senior assistant coaching position, and they won the Super Bowl. That created a big stir in the NFL uh, that maybe this is something we need to do.
0: Mm. and. I mean, any thoughts on why colleges continue lacking behind? I mean, I have some thought, like, is it because they're more decentralized than maybe the professional sports? Or, I mean, do you think that there's another reason why college sports is struggling?
1: We also published a report called the D1 Leadership Study because somebody pointed out to me way back around 2000 that, you know, this isn't happening accidentally. It's who's the athletic director, who is the president of the university, who are the senior associate ADs. And so we started doing a report card on those positions as well. And of course, what you find and can we continue to find is it's overwhelmingly white men in those positions as it is in the coaching positions themselves. So I think uh, you know, that doesn't have to be attributed to overt racism, but I think it's you know in part the old boys network of who you're comfortable with. And if you're a white man, you're probably more comfortable with another white man um as as your athletic director or or whatever the specific position happens to be so that has to be shaken up as well
0: okay interesting i i mean i it'd be kind of cool to see if they even went i love that eddie robinson rule idea you had i mean i could also see the ncaa putting pressure on saying if you want to host ncaa postseason events that you would have to have a certain percentage of diverse like diversity within your athletic department or qualify some type of standard like that again anything that
1: can Create motivation. Um, it's going. You to just switch. can't. You just came up with something that I'm going to steal and put in our arsenal of tools to try to get the needle to move. So thank you.
0: <laughs> no, no problem. Um, I mean, and so you talked a little bit about how once, like, just a couple of years ago, you started having organizations actually reach out to you. I mean, are we like? What are they asking you for? So it sounds like the NHL was, or NASCAR were some examples that just recently started doing reports, maybe at the behest of them or someone requested them, but how are they reaching out to you and what information are they looking for beyond just uh, like the public information you're putting out?
1: They're looking for what they can do to um, make their athletic departments whole. I mean, I spoke to uh, many individual athletic departments, as well as conferences during the past two years and, um, And they wanted to know, you know, what do we do? How can we do this? Obviously, doing a report card is one recommendation. Um, I recommended that they, uh, in their individual athletic departments, uh, honor the first Black athletes who played at that that university or college uh, to create a kind of symbolic thing that they all celebrate Juneteenth. That they get their help their student athletes be agents for changes as as voters to not only have them vote themselves but have them made available on election days and of course this is as that as the last presidential election was coming up was the timing of this as well as the two senate seats in Georgia that followed immediately after uh, to get them involved in taking people to the polls who couldn't get to the polls or just you know being being directly involved and and uh, in in addressing the student bodies of, of those colleges and universities, which I did a lot of as well. Um, encourage them to find a local organization that's working on an issue social justice issue that is important to them and volunteer for it and see how it feels and, and not only spend time while they're in college uh, doing that, but to, you know, will that be a lifelong uh, development for them that they stay involved and, and serve their community? Think, think of service as part of who they are as individuals. It feels better when you do that. I mean, I can tell you that everybody I know who we brought into various service from our students to civil rights organizations that I've worked with over the last 50 years, um, when somebody gets involved, they feel better about themselves. They realize uh, that they can and are making a contribution to changing something that was was fundamentally wrong.
0: And I know we've kind of hinted at some ways that this can happen, but how, how can organizations improve their gender and racial report card results in ways that maybe aren't currently being addressed?
1: Well, I think the diverse pool of candidates is, is the first step. Um, identifying people in the department or hiring people in the department who you can feel could be in a pipeline, you know, who could succeed our athletic director, who could, who could succeed, succeed the head basketball coach of men's and women's teams. Um, You know, just to keep that in mind, and I think that uh, doing diversity and inclusion training, which we've done a ton of, or organizations have done a ton of since uh, the murder of George Floyd, that, um, you know, we had, so we've been doing diversity and inclusion training since the 1980s. But to be honest with you, in the last three years before the murder of George Floyd, our team rarely went out. There was hardly any request for it. Now they're out every, almost every single day. And they're able to do that because of Zoom and it being virtual. Once it becomes in person again, which it's starting to, it'll be a little more difficult to organize it, but uh, they are interested in finding out what they're doing not so well and, and how they can improve it. And diversity inclusion training is a is a big boost to doing that.
0: To kind of switch topics here, thinking about that, create, you've created this Center for the Study of Sport and Society. Um, and... I see it discussed all the time, lots of great projects and research coming. That's like connected to that. But I mean, what's take us back to that decision to start the center? Like, what was that process like?
1: It goes way back. So that book that I referred to that I included the information that basically was the substance of the racial and gender report card got published uh, in 1984. Uh, the Dean of Arts and Sciences at Northeastern University read about it. And he invited me and uh, a man called Bob Lipsight, who was then a prominent sports columnist for the New York Times and a good friend, uh, and a guy called Dennis Brutus, who was a, an activist from South Africa to come up to Northeastern kind of brainstorm uh, of what a center would look like. And you know, we looked at what was out there and what wasn't out there and, and gave him some ideas. And I was working at the United Nations at the time, which is where I went after the physical attack in 1978. And I worked at the UN from, from 78 to 84. Had no thought of going back into academia or being involved in, in the world of sports, except, you know, thinking about the opportunity here. Um, you know, we, this was at a time that it was estimated that 27% of black basketball players were graduating uh, 30% of black football players were graduating and less than 40% of white Players in either of those sports were graduating. So, how could we improve those graduation rates? Uh, what kind of studies could we do? Uh, we started a degree completion program with the New England Patriots in 1988. And when I when the program opened up, and we had 13 New England Patriots in the program who went on to finish their degrees eventually. And I said to the dean of the college at, at, at Northeastern, I said, you know, this is there's some great ideas here. Nobody's doing outreach. Um, in the community using student athletes as spokespeople. He said, well, let's use those people seeking their degrees. So we did that, created an outreach program in Boston. And I said, we need to have this become a national movement. So we started in 1985, something called what was then called the National Consortium for Academics and Sport, uh, bringing in member institutions that if they joined, they agreed that any athlete who went to their school on a scholarship and revenue sport, uh, but didn't complete their education, could come back to finish their degrees at the expense of the university this time with no athletic return. But with the return that they were actually fulfilling their promise of getting this former student athlete an education. And in exchange, they would went to the schools and do community service at the time. It was a more simple world, talking about balancing academics and athletics. 1986, Len Bias dies of a drug, uh, cocaine overdose. Uh, the night after the NBA draft, and you know, drug abuse became a prominent subject. that we began to deal with in the schools. Uh, but eventually, we had over 280 colleges and universities join the National Consortium. Uh, they brought back more than 3,000 former student athletes who hadn't whose eligibility expired, but hadn't finished their degrees. Believe it or not, they spent gave donated more than 20 million hours of service uh, over the course of the history of the National Consortium. Worked with over 2 million. Uh, young people in the degree completion. I'm uh, sorry, in the schools outreach program, and I'm happy to tell you that almost all those schools adopted that, that internally, uh, an out a schools outreach program, and, and helping their athletes come back to finish their degrees. But when we started in 1985, literally no one was doing it. The NCA actually tried to fight us uh, because that meant that they were giving eligibility to to finish your degrees to somebody who was six or seven years out. Uh, of entering the, the university. So the Walter Byers, who's was then the head of the NCAA tried to crush us in the beginning, but it didn't work because how can you argue you against really finishing an education for somebody who didn't finish it and also being in that outreach program. So all those individual schools started it. We evolved into a, a program that did leadership training that does diversity inclusion training. We have a huge program on gender violence prevention It used to be called MVP. It's now called Huddle Up. It's the biggest program in the country using former athletes to to go into college campuses and also professional leagues uh, to teach about the issue issue of men's violence against women and how to become active bystanders if they see it happening. So that's now called the Institute for Sport and Social Justice. In the DeVos program, we have the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sport, and that's where we do the racial and gender report cards.
0: Yeah, I think... One thing that sticks out to me, and this is more logistical, it's just so interesting that you started a center at a place and then ended up going to somewhere else, but you still do have a, like a, a dynamic relationship. And with them, I think you're still listed as the uh, executive director emerita for that. So I'm assuming you have influence. I mean, what's that like to kind of work within a center that's now actually based at a different school than you're at now? Does that cause any challenges or is everything still kind of a good collaboration and relationship between all the parties?
1: No, it's a good collaboration. Um, most of the activity is happening with the two institutes that I just mentioned here, which are based at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. Uh, but for example, I was just in Boston last week, uh, speaking at UMass Boston, which started, a, by the way, a, a really fantastic-looking sports management program several years ago, and uh, visited the you know talked a lot about this the center at, at Northeastern and what they were doing and met with some of their funders while we were there. So it's a very positive relationship.
0: Nice. And I mean, to kind of finish this off here, it's like you have this great breadth of research and knowledge and experiences within sport that how could we, like even as scholars or teachers, implement your work in our research and teaching? And, and I, I only have research and teaching, but also I'd include service as well.
1: Well, I think where all those sports management programs exist, um, you know you can work with your athletic departments to try to get them to uh, creatively use the power of sport to affect positive social change. When we started the DeVos program in two thousand one, and made that one of the pillars of the program, that that we were going to not only give the students the the business skills they needed to be successful. Our program has a they get both an MBA as well as a master of sports business management, uh, but to understand that they are going to go out into this world and use the power of sport to affect positive social change. I, I think the more that gets implemented um, in other sports management programs around the country, the, the better the, the movement will become. And I think we've also reached a time where, you know, we're no longer talking about how to stop athlete activism. I don't mean we were doing that. I've been encouraging athlete activism since the, since the 1960s. Um, but, you uh, You know, when Kaepernick took the knee in 2016, I think it was universally uh, unpopular when the Milwaukee Bucks walked off the court or didn't come out on the court uh, in the bubble in the NBA playoffs in 2020 because of the shooting that had taken place in Kenosha nearby where the Bucks are from. uh, The NBA didn't get critical of them. The NBA shut down the entire league and the Players Association joined them. And two days later, uh, every other league was shut down the public opinion polls now show that sports fans who traditionally have been a kind of conservative group uh, overwhelmingly support athlete activism. 75% of sports fans support athlete activism. They also support their athletic departments and their teams supporting the athletes in those acts of activism. And they also support uh, corporations uh, to have social justice profiles within their corporate structure so that they're using the prop, some of the profits from whatever it is that they do uh, to help communities. And I think, you know, in, in, in the wake of the, the racial reckoning, it's a time of opportunity that other sports management programs can, can seize and begin to do. I know so many of the sports management programs have contacted us about how did we adopt diversity as, as one part of the pillars, but how do we teach it? to our students and and get them involved in that and encourage them to do so. You know, one of the things that we've done is in 2005, um, so DeVos, for those of you who don't know it, uh, we're Rich and Helen DeVos who gave the initial donation to start the program. They were the owners of the Orlando Magic and the president of the Magic, a man named Alex Mortens, who's been a good friend who coincidentally is now the chair of the board of trustees at UCF as well as being the president of the Magic said We're going down to Baton Rouge, which is where the first group of evacuees were going after Hurricane Katrina, would you like to come? I went, uh, was so moved by what I saw that I decided I wanted to go back and bring our students there as well as my family. So in December of 2006, we went for the first time to work in rebuilding in the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans. And since that time, we, our students have spent 58 weeks in New Orleans rebuilding. We worked on 158 homes in the ensuing years. And you know, for your listeners who've never been there, one in nine families in the Lower Ninth Ward is back. Uh, this is where the black community lived for the most part. Uh, New Orleans has gone from a majority black city to a majority white city. And a lot of people, including myself, believe that the, the city fathers, as they call themselves, uh, wanted to change that racial profile of the city. So they didn't allow any assistance into the lower ninth ward for the first 15 months after the storm. So there was no water and no power, which meant you couldn't start rebuilding your home, putting down a FEMA trailer. And, and that helped people to stay wherever it was they were relocated to after Hurricane Katrina. So they haven't come back. But what it's done for our our program, Matt is, you know, so we go the week before school starts. So on the Monday that everybody would traditionally be getting into a class and say, hi, Matt, I'm rich. Uh, they would have worked for a week's wedding shoulder to shoulder in the blazing New Orleans, August heat, uh, trying to write runs that they see and uh, that had happened in New Orleans, but they come uh, as part of a team. It's not in, you know, 25 individuals coming to UCF. It's a team of 25 people. Uh, and we try to, to structure that as a, as a family. And so those acts, service together really have, have that kind of long-term effect. Our students have to do 21 hours of service a semester locally while they're in classes. That may sound like a random number, but if you multiply 21 times two, it's 42 Jackie Robinson's number, which is where that idea came from. So in, included in all of the MBA classes and business classes that they take and sports business classes that they take, they do these acts of service. And it, I, I think it really helps our students wanna be involved uh, in the community after they finish their education. I can tell you that uh, after the murder of George Floyd, as the racial reckoning unfolded, I received, I bet from three quarters of the students who had graduated from the program and note uh, thanking us for getting them prepared for that moment uh, when the racial reckoning was taking place. Not by getting prepared, I mean being able to be actively involved in contributing uh, to bring about social justice in their communities.
0: Yeah, wow, that's an incredible connection there. We're talking about the importance of this topic and connecting with our students in the classroom. To kind of finish this up, I try to ask one fun podcast question, so we try to bring some levity here to the end. Of you talked about uh, some role, you talked about some really incredible people that you've met along the way, but thinking of you. As a faculty member, um, especially you're since joining the professoriate, is there someone that you've met that you really geeked out about? It doesn't have to be someone in academia, but maybe someone you met that just really blew you away. That's like, oh, wow, here I am. I get to meet this person. Like
1: who, who comes to mind? That I've got to meet this person? Yeah. Um, I, I was named the Muhammad Ali Humanitarian of the Year this year. Uh, Ali was one of those good friends from the 70s, and it was presented by his wife, Lonnie. And at the event, which took place at the Ali Center in Louisville, uh, was the family of George Floyd. Uh, I never thought that I would be able to connect directly to the Floyd family, although I wanted to, uh, just offer support or or whatever. And as it turned out, we became uh, really close during the two days we were in Louisville, and I'm now... On the board of the George Floyd Memorial Center and delivering the keynote address on the second anniversary of his murder um, as that day to commemorate it in May. Um, so, you know, meeting them, never thinking I would, uh, has brought a lot of positive reinforcement into my life and the life of my family, frankly. Yeah, wow. That's incredible.
0: Well, Dr. Lapchak, thanks for joining us on this. This has been a, a great topic. I, I've, I feel like I've learned a lot. I'll probably have to listen to this five or six times over the next six months to, to fully take it all in, but yeah, thanks for joining us on this.
1: Well, thanks for doing what you do, Matt. It was a
0: pleasure to be with you today. Yeah. Thank you. But thanks everybody for listening and joining us here for the State of Sport Management. We hope you join us for the next episode.